we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in the wilds of West Cork, I investigate stories of the strange. Sometimes cryptozoology, sometimes a little bit of UFOs, sometimes quite a lot of political fringe thinking. I also like to investigate stories of strange things as they make their way through fiction and films and books and things like that. And this episode is the long-awaited, at least long-awaited by me, episode on the 1977 film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, henceforth referred to only as Close Encounters, because the full title, of course, is something of a mouthful. This episode is going to be about the film itself, a spoilerific breakdown of many elements of the film, but what I'm mostly concerned with is this film's place within the larger mythology of UFO lore in the 20th, 20th century and beyond. I'm going to be talking about elements of UFOs uh, culture that influenced this film and in turn the influence that I think this film probably had on the field as well. Before I get started, I have some housekeeping stuff to do. The podcast is going to be changing a little bit because in real life things are getting busier here at the cabin and what that means is, by and large, um, I'm not going to be trying to keep to the schedule that I have recently. So for the last... I don't know, six months, maybe more. I've been doing an episode every Saturday and a bonus episode every Wednesday. Well, not not for six months, that, but uh, it's it's all getting a bit much. I'm going to go back to a schedule that I, something closer to the schedule I had before, where I made episodes kind of if and when I had time and ability. So when I have an idea that I'm really excited about, um, and I feel like I've given it the proper amount of time and research so that you're probably going to get fewer episodes, but hopefully better ones. What does that mean to the fine, fine people who've been helping me out over on Patreon? Um, Well, a massive thanks to everybody who did. That really, really goes a long way and helps keep the lights on here at the cabin, as we tend to say. I will be bringing that to an end uh, with with, with a huge thanks to everybody um, shortly. There will be at least one more bonus episode. I'll try and make it an extra special one. Um, I'll probably replace that system with uh, like a buy me a coffee situation or something like that. So if you enjoy an episode um, and you feel like helping out, you can do a sort of a once-off donation, something like that. We'll see uh, what happens over the next week or two. But my my heart goes out to, (laughs) that sounds a little bit dramatic, Um, a heartfelt thanks, I think, to everyone who did help, everyone who listens, everyone who gets in touch. You can, as always, get in touch um, over on Twitter, where we're at Strange Ireland, or Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. And there will still be episodes coming, of course, just maybe not as frequently, a couple of times a month, maybe. We'll, We'll see what happens. Um, and we have another episode in the pipeline for the American Militia series because that one was going down well and we were getting a lot of feedback about it. We're thinking of thinking of bringing uh, my brother Donald in to help with that one alongside myself and Ali and talk about the sort of resurgence of the militia uh, from about 2008 with the election of Obama because the some of the other stuff, some of the big main events that happened in between have been well covered by other shows. I'm talking, of course, about the, the Oregon standoff with the Bundys and stuff like that. There's a lot that has been said about that stuff already. 
in, in podcast land and I don't feel the need to do a deep dive on that one. I think anyone who's interested will probably have checked out like uh, Bundyville and, and shows like that. So we're going to jump ahead to a, uh, a slightly different take on it. So get in touch. Let us know if that's the sort of thing you would enjoy more of uh, going forward. My drink for the morning, because it is a lovely sunny sort of late December morning and this is probably the last episode you'll get before Christmas so it's our pseudo our pseudo Christmas episode and um, my beverage because it's early is a lovely coffee I'm about to plunge it actually and it's from Robert Roberts who of course are a uh, kind of a coffee company with some history in Ireland not any kind of uh, small or crafty company but one with the one who've been here for a long time and uh, I believe used to have physical cafes around Dublin in the rare old times. Now here in Cork when I was growing up at Christmas there would always be um, they would always show a sort of an old-fashioned blockbuster film from, from the 70s or the 80s and uh, watched a lot of Star Wars that way then a little bit later you'd get classics like uh, Jurassic Park so in that vein, this is as close as you're going to get to a, a Christmas episode from us here at the cabin. And uh, yeah, let's enough with the uh, preamble. Let's get talking about close encounters of the third kind. So it's 1977 when this film comes out. This is a key year not only in UFO history but also in science fiction history in general because of course this year got not one but two kind of standard bearing blockbuster science fiction epics in the cinema, Close Encounters and of course Star Wars. Now these are both incredibly influential films in different ways. Let's take a quick look at what's different about them. They are utterly different in how they treat science fiction they they play to completely different emotions and um, audiences i think appreciated both but they have left us with very different um elements behind them in in the in the cultural strata so close encounters is a long slow somewhat ponderous film it's it's definitely in the in the vein of the kind of classic 70s and late 60s, what I call sense of wonder science fiction, very typified, of course, by uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, I think it was 1968. So, you know, you've got these films where there's a weighty heft to them. There is a message. It is about our place in the cosmos. It, the kind of film that's inspired by the writing of, obviously, people like Arthur C. Clarke and, and to some degree, Isaac Asimov, but this very uh, speculative, speculative filmmaking about humanity and, and its place in, in the cosmos. Uh, Close Encounters is a film with a lot of ideas about religion, and uh, I'm going to put New Age uh, thinking in there as well. Certainly at this time in, in the mid-70s, this is something which is important. It does this weirdly through a, a particularly hard, what I'm going to call a hard sci-fi lens, certainly compared to Star Wars. This is hard science fiction where we're talking about kind of flesh and blood aliens, we're talking about nuts and bolts, spacecraft, and I'm sure those of you who listen to the show are aware that this was absolutely not the only way in which the UFO phenomena was being discussed, even, even at this point in the 1970s. Most importantly, I think, for the lasting effects in UFO lore, Close Encounters of the Third Kind places the alien grey front and centre. 
maybe not for the first time, but perhaps for the most influential uh, occasion. So we're going to talk a lot about that towards the latter half of the episode. But to me, that is one of the most important lasting impressions of this film within UFO culture, if not within science fiction in general. Obviously, then that baton would be taken up by the abduction people in the 80s and, of course, the X-Files in the, in the 90s. But this this was stuff I think that everybody knows now what an alien grey looks like and we have all these expectations about what uh, what a UFO is, what an alien is, how they behave, things that they do. And this is a period of, of time when these expectations are being set and it's my contention that this film Close Encounters was a very important piece in cementing that. But we'll get to that. Comparison with Star Wars, the same year actually came out a little bit earlier in, in the States at least. And uh, interestingly, we didn't get Close Encounters in Ireland until 1981, for some reason, so I've heard. Star Wars, by comparison, is fast, it's fun, it's silly, it's deliberate throwback, of course. As everybody knows, George Lucas is deliberately trying to make you think of the old 1940s TV serials and, and movie serials and, and Flash Gordon. And it's it's far more fantasy than it is science fiction. It's definitely not any kind of hard science fiction. It is absolutely the softest of science fiction that you can possibly get and I don't think it's easy to point to any influences Star Wars had directly within UFO culture besides just generating more interest in in space in general but you can't say enough about the effect of Star Wars on the development of the modern blockbuster as we as we know it today I mean, it's generally agreed that Jaws, a couple of years before, is like the kind of prototypical first summer action blockbuster. And Spielberg, obviously the man behind both Close Encounters and Jaws. And this is a period when, you know, people people before this didn't know that folks would go to the cinema in the summer. They thought this that was a dead loss. It was traditionally a time when studios dumped films that they couldn't sell at other times of the year and Jaws changed all that and then Star Wars up to the ante and of course all of that stuff about Joseph, uh, Joseph Campbell which is being channeled famously by Lucas and, and that style of storytelling kind of has led us to where we are now with science fiction and fantasy pretty much being the dominant genre of mainstream filmmaking at least at the high-end Hollywood level, uh, represented today probably largely by Marvel and, and super superhero movies is obviously the flavor of the day but you know I, we, you can trace all of that stuff directly back to a few key films and star wars is definitely one of them now the state of film in 1977 is important also is the state of the paranormal because as is widely remembered the 70s was a time when mainstream culture was very into spooky things and ufos in general so um, I had a little chat online with uh, Dr. Edward Guimont, who spoke recently on the podcast magnificently about Mukile Membe and, and um, sort of monster hunting in colonial times. And I absolutely advise you to go and check out that episode if you haven't. It's brilliant. He uh, noticed noted that uh, the In Search of TV show came out the same year as as Close Encounters, which... I didn't I wasn't aware of until a few years ago just because it wasn't available or didn't make as much of a splash on this side but I'm very aware that it was hugely influential on many many people who study the supernatural the paranormal UFOs anything like that anyone of a certain age in Canada or the US knows this show and I've since gone back and watched a whole bunch of episodes and it, it came out at that key time and it introduced a lot of people to these ideas uh, for the first time. You also have in Britain UFOs being debated in Parliament during the 1970s as well. 
you have a lot of key cases happening in UFO culture. You've got the, the Pascagoula in Mississippi abduction case. You've got the Travis Walton case in 1975, just a couple of years before Close Encounters. Uh, crucially, you've got the, the Betty and Barney Hill case, which of course was much earlier. It was 1961, but it's not until 1966 that um, most people start to know about it because it's a couple of years before they do their hypnosis and it's a couple more years before the book The Interrupted Journey by Fuller comes out and the story becomes very well known. And it's not until 1975 that the film version uh, g brings this story probably to the largest number of people. The film, of course, is called The UFO Incident and starring as Barney Hill is none other than James Earl Jones. And uh, Dr. Greenmont made the connection that he was wondering because uh, Spielberg and Lucas, of course, knew one another and Spielberg had an interest in UFOs, as we'll get to. He was just kind of wondering... He, we're assuming that Spielberg probably saw the UFO incident, and we'll get back to that too, uh, wondering if maybe that's where he came across the work of James Earl Jones, who of course went on to be the voice of Darth Vader. Just a kind of bit of fun speculation there. Other stuff happening in UFO land in the 1970s, you've got the famous 1976 Tehran encounter, you've got the, the Broadhaven Triangle, this is a British case that's really fascinating. Um, with uh, a multitude of, of high strangeness cases, uh, silver-suited entities transporting cattle, UFOs left, right and centre um, in, in a region in Wales. You've also got the Berwyn Mountains uh, UFO crash also in Wales. And then in 1979, you've got the Deckmont Woods encounter up in Scotland, which is a really, really unusual UFO occupant slash robot slash question mark sort of a case and we we do have an episode about that from ages ago but it's good it's worth looking that's the Deckmont Woods encounter so the 70s was the time for this in the mainstream enter Steven Spielberg let's talk about him as as the man behind Close Encounters he's not one of my favorite directors in general um for lots of reasons but Let's talk about what is he good for. He is good for that sense of awe and wonder. So he is the man, exactly the man to bring in when that's what you want in a film. Um, he can be schmaltzy at his worst and I'm not always in the mood for that sort of uh, emotional, gooey, awe and wonder stuff. But when I'm feeling like it and when Spielberg is on form, it's absolutely magic and this film does just enough of that. It is problematic and we are absolutely going to talk about that and we're absolutely going to talk about how it, it is flawed in ways that I understand why lots of people don't like it. I didn't see it myself as a kid. I saw bits and pieces of it. I was interested in UFOs, but I was really turned off by the sort of overt, kind of gooey, sentimental, spiritual element of this, which also we'll, we'll get to. So I'm going to... I'm going to read a little bit from a Rolling Stone interview that was suggested to me by Dr. Guimont. And it's about Spielberg talking about childhood, because this is one of his main themes in all of his films. He, I mean, what he's good at is the, the sense of awe and wonder, and, and in particular from the viewpoint of a child. And this is something that runs through all of his films, even, even the likes of Jurassic Park, where the awe and wonder we feel towards the dinosaurs or towards the, the aliens and the craft in, in Close Encounters is very similar. So in this Rolling Stone... Uh, interview, and this is taken from the time when the film was just coming out in the 70s, he wrote, I really wanted to take a child's point of view, the uneducated innocence that allows a person to take this kind of quantum jump and go abroad, if you will. A conscientious, responsible adult human being probably wouldn't, especially if his life had a lot of equilibrium. He certainly would turn down the chance to go that far abroad. 
Spielberg here is, of course, talking about the main character in Close Encounters, who um, his character arc is that he wants to join the aliens and leave Earth with them. As opposed to someone like Neri, whose whole life sprouted out of model trains and his den workshop. Because for me, Neri was not so much the father of the family of four, but a member of that family, no different than any of the kids. And yeah, like I said, this is something you can spot in almost any of Spielberg's films. He wants to bring the audience back to that kind of childlike, innocent time where your mind is still open and forming and you are blown away by new things. And only then can you feel that kind of sense of, of awe that he wants to instill within you. And that's what he's really good at, like I said, when he's on form and when you're in the mood for it. Sometimes when you're feeling a little more cynical, uh, his kind of gooey stuff can stick in the craw somewhat. Now, another cool thing about Spielberg and this film is that he was genuinely interested in UFOs and had been for a long time. And he really went above and beyond when it came to trying to peg this film to real stuff from UFO culture, which is one of the things that I find fascinating about the film. Even if it, even if it fails for you as a movie or a storytelling, um, it is a pretty good take on what UFO culture was like at this time. So famously, he got J. Allen Hynek on board as a kind of a an advisor, I suppose, a technical advisor. If you don't know, Heineck, of course, was the um, he was he was the scientific advisor to Project Blue Book, which was the U.S. Navy's. So that should be Air Force, of course. Uh, attempt to catalog UFO encounters, and for much of its for much of its time, running from the the late forties right up until nineteen sixty nine, or according to some sources, January nineteen seventy, they genuinely were involved in sort of downplaying the cases and trying to find explanations for them and preventing the public from taking it too seriously especially during its project grudge incarnation which it's known that they were definitely trying to not cover up because they they wouldn't admit there was anything to cover up but it was not a, a wholehearted attempt to investigate the phenomena um, from an unbiased standpoint shall we say but Heineck of course is a fascinating guy within ufology because he was a, a scientist just the kind of guy you'd expect and want to have on a project like this he was an astronomer uh, from a local university and he was skeptical and kind of came to believe that there was maybe something in this and by the 70s he was uh, operating by himself he was operating his own research uh, facility connected to ufos and he joined the production in, in a few key ways, he was paid $1,000 for the use of the name Close Encounters of the Third Kind because, of course, it's taken from the, the famous system that Heineck came up with. You know, Close Encounters of the First Kind is when you see something in the sky that's a UFO. Of the second kind is uh, when there is traces or evidence or something, something kind of more concrete. And the third kind is where you see or meet the occupants of the craft. Now, in 1972, Heineck wrote a book called The UFO Experience, which I think we can definitely infer Spielberg read and, and utilized as part of the script for this film. Heineck himself only spent three days working as a consultant. So I presume that was mostly in a uh, maybe meetings and talking and uh, suggesting ideas about elements of the script to make them fit in with what he knew about the UFO phenomena at the time. He does show up in the film at one point as well, which is pretty cool. And um, Also, another important figure here is Jacques Vallée, of course, who is still on the scene. He was a, he's a Frenchman who was important in interpreting uh, this kind of 1950s wave of UFOs in France, and then he moved to America and was very influential in the 70s, mostly talking about 
the idea that UFOs were more like traditional folkloric creatures like goblins and, and ghosts and leprechauns and stuff. And he, he felt maybe they're all manifestations of the same um, you know, key process or the same sort of spiritual element, if you like. He's still around, and I believe uh, this week or last week he did a like three-hour interview with Joe Rogan. I, I can't deal with three-hour Joe Rogan conspiracy fests anymore. I really can't. But Valet, you know, you, you can't overlook the stuff he did in those days, at least. And he was very influential in how people perceived the UFO movement. And the Wiz is kind of split between whether they were nuts and bolts craft or whether they were something else, the, the psychosocial hypothesis versus the... Uh, the extraterrestrial hypothesis i suppose and he was key he was a key figure in that battle he's not in this film directly and i don't know that he was involved in the making of it but there is a main character who is of course francois truffaut playing a fellow called lacombe who is a french ufo specialist of some kind and is clearly uh, based on at least the idea of jacques valet so it's, it's it's really cool for fans or buffs of ufo lore to spot how elements of this film are taken from real aspects of ufology and a lot of this we can presume came from J. Allen Hynek either through conversations with Spielberg or from his book uh, The UFO Experience. Spielberg interestingly had been hanging on to this idea for a very long time and years earlier uh, he had made a two-hour amateur film called Firelight which plays with some of the ideas that eventually became uh, close encounters it is it is about ufos and you know this is a little bit different from other kinds of science fiction takes on aliens before and after because it's not um it, it, it because it's i suppose so directly linked to the ufo version of it and his own take on that as well the film uh, came out through columbia and cost 19.4 million and there was a lot of stress before it came out from spielberg and from the company as uh, it proved to be an extremely expensive production. I don't think they were expecting um, a UFO theme. At, at first, it wasn't something they were as excited about as Spielberg was, and uh, he had to argue to get some of the reins given over to him, and the script went under lots of different changes. Lots of other people besides Spielberg contributed to the script, but I don't. I, I really don't have time to get into that. The, the history of the script is very convoluted, but... He came up trumps. It made about 300 million worldwide and basically put a lot of eyeballs in front of the idea of sky watching, lights in the sky, technological aliens, extraterrestrial hypothesis, and for me, most importantly, the alien greys. Who's in this film? We've got Richard Dreyfus, of course, as the main man, Roy Neary. Um, we have Francois Truffaut, who was a French director who Spielberg really admired and was kind of bowled over to get him in the role as Lacombe, and he's the sort of international flying saucer expert who's advising the US government. We have Terry Garr as Roy's wife, uh, Ronnie, and we have Melinda Dillon as a woman named Gillian, who is also affected by the UFOs and uh, sort of comes closer to Roy and kind of is behaving in the same way as him and has the same reaction to her own UFO encounter. So let's get into the film. We're not going to talk about every single scene that would take forever, but there's a lot of great stuff here, folks, um, and I really, really want to get into this. So start just starting off with that title, Close Encounters of, of the Third Kind. Very clever, very cleverly chosen title because it sounds scientific. Imagine you're... You're, you're writing a, a science fiction film, effectively, that where you want to make the UFO phenomena feel real. You want to make it sound like this is a real 
grounded thing that people are studying and they have all this terminology. So, you know, close encounters of the third kind. It sounds scientific. And it was. I mean, Heineck, out of everybody studying this, did his level best to make the study as scientific as it could be. So he was the right guy to have in your corner. And um, like I said, he, he got paid for the use of the title alone. He also got paid another grand, I think, for the use of various stories within his book. And he got paid one and a half grand for the three days he spent actually involved in the production. When we first see the title, it's in a very specific font. This is called Handel Gothic. And... It's a memorable font and it's gone on to a fairly illustrious career. I I think Spielberg chose this one because it looks vaguely futuristic. It looks vaguely scientific, especially in the 70s. It's a little bit reminiscent of the NASA font. Uh, and I think those were the kind of connotations people would have had with it at the time. And uh, since then, it's been used in shows like Deep Space Nine and Voyager. So both, both of those Star Trek shows. So the font and the name itself kind of puts into your head, right, this is a, a somewhat scientific take on, on the phenomenon. And interestingly, he's, he's, he's borrowing from the language of science and from the kind of secular UFO tradition, as, as Magonia magazine used to call it. The, the secular UFOs are the ones who, um, you know, like Heineck's take on it, like that it's a, it's a nuts and bolts phenomena that can be investigated scientifically. But Spielberg is taking these scientific aspects because he desperately will later need to balance them against the super religious and spiritual themes that he's going to be dealing with. And that's kind of what's so interesting about this film. You've got these two influences fighting against each other. A little, little bit like when we spoke about Jurassic Park on that episode with, um, you know, Crichton wanting to be, Michael Crichton, the author of the book, wanting to be critical of of science and, and the dinosaurs whereas Spielberg comes in again with his childlike awe and wonder and, and wanting to champion champion them and champion their creator as well but this film also has two sort of warring elements and I think they come together nicely I don't feel like it's a it's a contradiction this is a film that does have some contradictions but to me that's not one we cut to the Sonora Desert in Mexico and we meet uh, our government agents of some sort. Uh, Spielberg is never too precise about who they are. They, they could be just like those faceless goons from who were the bad government guys from E.T. Who knows? But immediately we're hit with the theme of language. So we've got locals who are speaking Spanish. We have Americans who are speaking English and we have uh, Lacan who is of course speaking French and communication or lack of communication is one of the main themes for this film there's a kind of a tower of babel theme that um spielberg is playing with and and given the overt religious stuff we're going to see i don't think that's too much of a stretch obviously in the story of the tower of babel uh, humanity is speaking one language and then they become hubristic and try to build this tower and god punishes them by changing them so that they all speak different languages they can no longer uh, collaborate on something like that and the story is supposed to be about being punished for their hubris or challenging god or something whereas i don't know if this film is about that weirdly i feel like this film is about humanity learning to speak with one language which interestingly turns out to be music as a kind of a, a universal language uh, and mankind is not being punished in this film for being hubristic it's more like we have finally grown up and we're ready to meet you know, meet God or slash meet our maker slash join the galactic community. There's a little bit of, little bit of Star Trek um, lore here. You know, if you if you're a fan of Star Trek and you know about the concept of of the first contact within the Star Trek universe, the idea that humanity finally grows up, 
um, stops having war and you know gets a one world government and only then oh and also we we invent warp drive and only then do the local other races in our quadrant notice us and deem that we are now mature enough to join this kind of galactic community and there's a little bit of that going on here um, and again tower of babel is is if i'm not mistaken uh, old testament stuff which spielberg you know he brings his jewish background into things a lot and um you, you don't have to think too far you know with with the work of both lucas and spielberg into the realm of indiana jones where god is shown as this kind of very old school very old testament vengeful force from beyond um, I've heard him referred to as pretty much being like one of H.P. Lovecraft's old ones. So why are these guys in the Sonora Desert? They're there because something incredible and miraculous has happened. A, a number of fighter planes have appeared in the desert and this is the return of Flight 19. So if you're a uh, buff of the strange and the paranormal you will of course be familiar with this one. There is this story that in uh, on December 5th 1945 five torpedo bomber planes disappeared off the coast of i believe florida um, in an, an area that later got designated as being part of the infamous bermuda triangle and i believe some other planes were sent after them to find them and also went missing now the truth seems to be less mysterious than the legend but we don't have time to go there all i'll say is this story would have been very familiar to viewers because of the success of a book called the bermuda triangle by a guy named charles berlitz which came out in 19 74 and i remember this because i've seen it in friends houses whose parents owned it when i was a kid so you know old battered old kind of paperbacks of this were still knocking around uh, a good 20 years later if not more uh, this location this this mexico opening does several things for the film it kind of opens up the film and gives it a global feel because the film is mostly set in the american midwest but it also brings in some ideas about like indigenous people and spirituality which i think feeds into the larger paranormal culture so they meet this kind of local indigenous fellow who explains what he saw he, you know the, he saw something the night that the planes came back and he perceives the phenomena in distinctly non-scientific and, and non-western terms he says something like you know last night the sun came out during the night and sang to me and this is this is a common thing that shows up in sort of colonial or pseudo-colonial mystery literature where you know the western people who are like rationalistic and scientific go to these strange places and they meet indigenous people who are completely open to the ideas of strange things happening but they don't perceive them in the same way and this shows up in stuff like the the serious mystery which uh, i believe we talked about in the last episode the idea that, you know, people in some part of East Africa, I think, the Dagon tri tribe had this uh, knowledge about astronomy that they couldn't possibly have, have accessed um, ordinarily. So they must have uh, been visited by aliens in the past, ancient aliens. So again, you've got this idea that it's like chariots of the gods stuff, really. The idea that, you know, primitive man is still in touch with the earth or in touch with the spirits or in touch with the universe in some way that we've lost or forgotten and the idea that if you if you dig through this indigenous knowledge and then translate it into western terms you'll find evidence for you know eth technocratic or techno technological aliens or, or something like that 
So just a little, a little tiny touch of that in there. Uh, next we move to a, a UFO radar case. So we get these guys in an airport uh, looking at the radar and talking about mysterious dots that they're seeing and communicating with pilots who are seeing the craft as well. And this is taken directly from UFO lore. So there's absolutely no doubt that Spielberg or Hynek would have would have known about any number of cases where this came from. But let's just quickly mention the famous Washington invasion of 1952, which is when uh, basically uh, a lot of folks at that side of the eastern seaboard started picking up mysterious blobs on the radar. And this got out to the public and there were lots of sightings of UFOs. There's a famous photograph of the White House dome with all these spooky lights over the top of it, which um, does the rounds quite often, but actually has nothing to do with the, the 1952 case. It's a much later photograph. And if you, see, if you see an uncropped version of it, it's very clear that the lights in the sky are reflections of lights on the street. But a very evocative case and a very famous one and just one of any number really of influential radar UFO cases. Shortly after this film came out in 1980, you have the Rendlesham case, of course, in, in the UK, which was a multiple sighting, multiple night sighting. I've been there. I went to the site of the case in the east, in, in East Anglia, and it kind of got started as uh, mystery blobs on the radar kind of a case. So this is all very grounded stuff. We never see any of the flying craft. All we see is the guys looking at the radar, asking questions. And I think this is probably the influence of Hynek, either himself or his book. Interestingly, they make a point of showing that the pilots don't want to report the UFOs. The guy um, the guy kind of at the base calling out to them says, do you want to report a UFO? And they all have a little think and they say, no, no, we don't want to report that. And it's you get the you get the idea that, you know, maybe maybe pilots see these all the time, but because of a culture of of, of secrecy officially or just personal embarrassment, they don't want to talk about it. And as I've said on the show before, I did at least once in my life know a pilot who was very, very into UFO culture and was always telling me that, oh, pilots see these all the time and they just can't talk about it because it's not acceptable and they would jeopardize their careers or some such. I've met pilots who told me it's all a load of nonsense as well. I make a point of asking a pilot if I ever meet one. But, I mean, it works for me that if you were someone with that kind of a job and that kind of responsibility, if you did start seeing weird things, you know, I, I suspect you probably wouldn't want to talk about it and not necessarily because there's some kind of conspiracy, just because you wouldn't want to get a reputation for being unreliable when your job carries that kind of responsibility. Anyway, we cut to a town called Muncie, Indiana, and this is where most of the film takes place. And it's all happening in small town Midwest US in these kind of nice ranch houses. Now, Spielberg is deliberately doing something here. He's trying to remove us from the likes of 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I think is fair to say would have been the previous standard bearer for this kind of high concept science fiction. 2001 Space Odyssey is 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 basically saying, you know, in the future or, you know, technology or travel or transport with or meeting with aliens can bring kind of spiritual growth but that's only going to happen to you know astronauts venturing out to the edge the very edge of known space so that they can experience some kind of revelation whereas Spielberg is like no 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 let's bring that home let's let's make this kind of 
cosmic spiritual revelation, something that can happen to you in your small little boring town. So he's he's deliberately choosing what is to him an ordinary place, which is small town Midwest US. Weirdly, and I don't know if this is applicable, you know, uh, uh, around the world, but to places outside of the US, those of us who have been inundated with this kind of imagery for years, the American Midwest itself, I think, has become a kind of a mythical, mythological place as a direct result of films like this. It's, it's just a, it's an unintended side effect of Spielberg trying to be trying to provide you with something which is ordinary. Um, but, you know, I can't help but uh, be sort of enraptured by this vision, this pastoral vision of small, small town US life with these lovely ranch houses and the wide open space everywhere. And uh, it just seems like a, a nice, quiet, beautiful place. Partly because of the heightened and, and somewhat unrealistic look of the the town in the film. So not much of it, I, as far as I can tell, was filmed in a real place. A lot of a lot of matte paintings are used to establish the the look of the town, and there are a lot of sets, and they're very evocative and very well done. But you can sometimes spot that they're they're indoors rather than outdoors. Uh, but it just gives the whole thing a slightly slightly magical, unreal look. And it's very, very, very beautiful. This is a, a wonderful film to just pause and, you know, uh, look at any particular frame and uh, the composition of it is magical. And the use of the night sky constantly is incredibly important here. Spielberg said about this film that he wanted the sky to kind of do the same thing that the, the water does in Jaws. So you, if you stop and look how often the camera, the frame is full of sky and, and stars. He also said that he wanted this film to make everybody who went to see it come out of the theater and immediately look up at the uh, up at the stars and I, I think it does it does achieve that so there's a kind of a dual thing happening with this with this uh, midwestern locale for me at least and uh, i'll be interested to hear if folks from other countries around the world have this uh, when americans watch this did they just think oh there's another boring town uh, you know or do they think that that's great that's what we want uh, america to be i don't know so we get the, the the first imposition of the alien invaders and it's a whole lot of toys moving inside this ranch house and electronic things turning on and off and UFO causing UFOs causing electronic interference is of course a key element of UFO stories down through the years um probably the 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 hills encounter as well would have been a key a key influence here where the strange beeping sounds come through the car radio before the abduction and their their watches stop and start at strange times stuff like that but in any number of cases really could have been the the influence here we get the little boy barry he's like two or three and he wakes up and he is seeing all this happening but he's not scared and we kind of get our first our first notion that there's some positive connotation to all of this that Somehow, as a child, he instinctively understands that this is a force for good. And uh, again, it's it's Spielberg doing his whole, you know, wonder of childhood thing. Like, children are somehow more pure. They're more in touch. They, you know, the adults are frequently scared, or at least his mother is frequently scared of what's happening. But he, he himself, uh, the child, feels no worry about this. Like, he somehow knows that it's it's a good thing. And we cut to our main character, Roy, who is in his own house with his family. And he is as Spielberg said earlier in that in that bit I read from the from the interview Roy is childlike he's playing with his trains he seems to be obsessed with the film Pinocchio he wants to take his kids to go and see Pinocchio because he says it's a classic children's film and it's full of magic and 
you know, Pinocchio wants to be a real boy, and I suppose Roy does as well. And to him, family life is like somehow stifling. So the cinema cinematography here makes the house feel pokey. It's full of stuff, and there's kids everywhere. And one of the kids is always banging something or making a lot of noise. And he's kind of arguing with uh, with his wife, Terry Gar, a lot. And you've got this kind of slightly problematic trope of the, the shrill wife, you know. And this is this is just a common thing in films in general over the decades where the films tend to focus on a guy who has a dream and wants to go and do his own thing. And then the wife sort of just nags him and doesn't really understand and this film is is weird because actually to me she seems really really reasonable like I have a hard time liking Roy and this is going to be a problem this is pr the most problematic thing about the film I think is that Spielberg wants us to see him as the hero and a guy who has got to go and fulfill his need uh, and, and carry out this mission that he has and he in order to do that eventually he has to leave his family behind and it's just a really hard sell. And it's something Spielberg himself has changed his mind over the years. He was quite a young man when he made this. He was only 28 or 29 while filming. And he was very much of the opinion, you know, he was very much at that point of his life where he, he said, you know, if, if an alien spaceship landed right in front of me and this incredible adventure was to be suddenly afforded to me, yeah, I'd drop everything and go and do it. Now, he didn't, he didn't have a family at the time. And years later, he said, well, you know, I have kids now. I think I'd have written this character differently. But there's a real... This is a real problem for me because I find Roy hard to to like or hard to support. And his family aren't really portrayed as being terrible or awful or onerous. They, they seem... They're chaotic and boisterous. But, you know, the wife is incredibly supportive and really does her, her best to support him. Um, but he he has to go and do his own thing, and it's it's hard for this not to come off as as selfish and impulsive. But we 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 then get another key element dropped in here, kind of quietly in the background. The film The Ten Commandments is playing in the background. So again, this religious theme, and of course, The Ten Commandments is about Moses, and Roy himself is going to come off eventually as a kind of a Moses figure, you know, or even a Jesus figure. Basically, there's a heavy religious element here which is the idea that, you know, this one guy is chosen for this great task and he will transcend his ordinary boring life and unfortunately that means he has to leave people behind. And, oh, I'm not religious myself, so it's really difficult for me to get on board with this. Like, I, 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 it, it would not even come into my sort of emotional vocabulary to recognise a religious event as a legitimate thing even in a, as a plot point so you know i i think that is what spielberg is getting at here but that's something we're going to have to come back to ironically while he's talking about the film pinocchio terry gar the wife uh, calls him jiminy cricket which is kind of rough because jiminy cricket is like pinocchio's conscience and like one of the themes of pinocchio is following your conscience and well, this film is the opposite of that. Roy, like, doesn't, you know, he leaves behind all of his responsibilities to go and do this crazy thing. And, and uh, the, the whole family are kind of forgotten about, you know, partway through the film. Anyway, there's a power outage in the town. And this also is taken from real UFO stuff. So in 1965, a vast swathe of the eastern US and some of Canada were plunged into darkness during an outage and then later on there were lots of rumors about ufos causing 
the outage. So I suspect that that's where this is coming from. Roy seems to work with the power company or has something to do with the power. So he gets sent out in the middle of the night by his boss to investigate this power outage. And this is where he has his UFO encounter. He's in his truck and he's parked in some quiet remote location on a country road as you know many ufo encounters happen on remote places like this and he's parked next to a railway line and yeah a ufo comes to him and this scene is brilliant it's really effective it really it takes all the best spooky elements from actual ufo stories and there's a heavy element of Heineck's involvement here i suspect there is an incredible example of vehicle interference which is a, obviously a standard ufo trope um, I'm thinking of the 1988 one from Australia. There's a, a family called the Knowles family um, driving across the Nullarbor Plain where a, a UFO hovers over their car and starts to make funny sounds through the radio and lights are going on and off and then eventually the craft lands on top of the roof and brings them up into the air. So obviously that's after this film, but you know, I mean, don't this film was very was very influential. So I, I think it contributed at least as much to the genre as as it as it took so we've got bright lights in the sky uh, he looks out and he sees he sees a craft that is clearly technological this is eth this is extra extraterrestrial hypothesis no questions asked you know at no point do we think the ufo is some kind of psychic phenomena it's it's clearly a nuts and bolts craft which is again that sort of thing that Spielberg is trying to tread between the mystical and spiritual and the the physical. I am going to read from Warren Buckland. Warren Buckland wrote a book called Directed by Steven Spielberg and he's actually quoting he's talking about this scene but he's quoting stuff from Hynek's book The UFO Experience from 1972 and he's just pointing out a few bits that match closely to Ro uh, Roy's UFO encounter. I keep wanting to say Ray. So a witness reports, it seemed to me that this object was charting a course or investigating different objects on the ground as the lights would stop on certain objects such as cars, pickups, hedges and poles, which is something we see in this scene. Hovering is common, as is lack of sound, and very frequently a rapid takeoff without an accompanying sonic boom is reported. Again, that fits with the scene. Uh, the physical effects reportedly include temporary paralysis, numbness, a feeling of heat, and other discomfort. Interference with the local gravitational field sometimes is also reported, as evidenced by the reports of some observers of temporary feelings of weightlessness or other inertial effects, as though the well-known laws of inertia had become temporarily abrogated. There is a, a moment during this scene where like gravity seems to be changed, and within inside his vehicle, uh, all the bits of paper and other bits and pieces are kind of floating around and, and flying backwards and up, up and down. Uh, Heineck goes on to say, cars are seemingly accosted on lonely roads, sometimes but not always resulting in a killed engine and the failure of lights and radio. And we see that in the scene as well. Lastly, just as the UFO landed, a deafening rattle was heard coming from a metallic road sign some 50 to 20 feet from the landing site. The sign had been set into violent vibration. And that's something we see lots of in the scene as well. The next kind of set piece scene is a, a UFO police chase. This is also taken from uh, a real encounter. So uh, in, in a place called Portage County in Ohio in 1966, there was a famous case where not one but several police cars 
reportedly chased a UFO. This happens on a wonderful... It's supposed to be outdoors. I think it's a set. It it looks slightly artificial, but it's really beautiful and it's very evocative. And we meet a whole bunch of kind of country folks. Uh, they're kind of dressed like hicks. And uh, there is this stereotype that UFOs always abduct hicks and, and people in remote places. Uh, and this scene is kind of playing into that a little bit. But they're all waiting out on the, on the road uh, as if they know it's going to happen. We get the idea that the implication that these UFOs are coming every single night, that this is an ongoing phenomena. And uh, Roy, again, he's he's there to see that. He comes back into his house and he's he's super pumped. He's all excited. He wakes up the whole family and he's so, he's so pumped about his encounter that he can't even talk properly. He's trying to explain to his wife what he's so excited about. And he can't, he, he, he just keeps saying like, and the whoosh and the woo and the wah, and he's making all these sound effects. First time I watched this, I needed no explanation as to why he would be so excited. You know, I'm fascinated by UFOs. I always have been. If I had even the slightest snifter that there was something to be seen, I would be up in arms, tremendously excited about it. And that's all there is to it. So I understand this scene and I need no further context for it. But that's not the same for everybody. And the film eventually establishes that there is some particular reason why he's so obsessed with the UFO. When he stuck his head out of the car during his encounter earlier, there's like this weird sound effect that kind of, and a flash that sort of gives you the implication that something is being implanted into him, as, as, we'll, as will turn out to be the case. So the film implies that there's something more than him just being fascinated by, by the flying saucer. Um, and from here on out, he starts becoming irresponsible. He wakes the family up in the middle of the night. He makes them go back out to the road where he saw the UFOs, even though there's nothing there anymore. And again, we have this, we start to see the theme of kind of Spielberg's love for adventure as, as a young man versus, you know, adulthood and responsibility. And these two are constantly set at odds and in ways that I think any person above a certain age will probably find a little bit troubling. Again, Terry Gar is very patient and understanding. And yet, you know, the film seems to implicate that we're supposed to side with him instead. And hey, I'm excited about UFOs too, but, you know, this this is a tough sell. And she, she does her best to kind of, you know, bring him back to Earth. <laughs> and he's, uh, he keeps looking up at the sky and we, it's, it's like he's been given... A religious calling so i'm at this point I'm, I'm at the heart of the the quandary of can this be understood as a, a religious theme and is that a legitimate way to view the film so if you are uh, someone who you know has a religious worldview where you know these things are real and can happen and you believe stories or at least you know you you follow stories like with these religious characters from from history uh, saints and 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 people like that you know where they are given this mission from beyond and therefore they have to leave everything else behind they have to leave their ordinary life behind and anybody who might depend on them has to be left behind and i find that really tough because i i think well either you're being fooled or you're being irresponsible so it's a it's a tough tough one for me and i th i do think this is where a lot of people lose the, or leave this film behind I think is with this theme and I think the way Spielberg deals with it is sometimes it works there are times when I feel what what Roy feels but there are times when it just feels irresponsible and, and juvenile
The next morning, he's got a sunburn. Half of his face is is bright red. And this is taken from any number of classic UFO cases in 1952. You've got the Disvergers case where this, this, this scoutmaster is driving these scouts on a road outside the Florida Everglades and he sees something so he stops the car and goes into the into the bush and has an encounter with a ufo that uh, later on he has burns and skin burns and, and singed hair and stuff like that in 1967 there's a famous case in manitoba at a place called falcon lake where a witness has a close encounter and then later on has this these weird burn marks on his body on his on his torso in, in kind of like a grid formation which matches with this sort of grill-like exhaust thing that was on the side of the flying saucer. Moving on, like af after this film came out, there's a very famous case from 1980, just a few years after Close Encounters, called uh, The Cash Case. There, This is Texas, I think it's outside Houston, where two middle-aged women and a small child are in a car on a lonely road. They encounter a, a, a craft that is kind of diamond-shaped with a... Uh, some sort of exhaust of fire coming out the bottom of it and they have a lot of burns afterwards and they suffer a lot of health ill health effects according to lore anyway there there are some potential explanations for this but i that's beyond the scope of this episode we then get the beginning of a, a kind of famous subplot where ray becomes obsessed with this shape and i think you can infer that the the, the alien spaceship somehow put this idea into his head, but he starts crafting it out of shaving foam that morning when he's he's in the bathroom. And this is the beginning of his journey. And again, we, we come back to this sort of Campbellian thing that he's special, he's been chosen. You know, the wife is doing her best to, to bring him back to her, but she has to be left behind because he's got to go and, and, and follow this mission. And quite aside from religious narratives, this is something that shows up to one degree or another in a lot of american films and it goes back to the sort of campbell stuff and I, i'm not against the campbell hero's journey thing i i'm a big fan of uh, the writer's journey which is based on that which is christopher vogler and i think you can learn a lot from that and i think a lot of creative people discover this at a certain point in their in their career sometimes when they're quite young and it makes a big impression on them the problem is that sometimes people learn the wrong lessons from it or lean too heavily into certain aspects of it even when it's not appropriate and the sort of hero's journey like the one guy chosen chosen guy thing can become a little toxic sometimes it is also a real thing that does happen in religious narratives so people who tend to start their own sects or cults or religions or what have you very often have this big change in their life and, and leave people behind and i don't think it's always for the best it also happens in in straight-up paranormal culture as well. Uh, I guess the best example I can think of is like Rene de Hinden, who's one of the famous four horsemen of Sasquatchery, who was a Bigfoot hunter in, in, the, in the glory days of, of that in the mid-20th century, who eventually his wife left him because he had this mania for this, this one thing that he absolutely had to chase to the very end. And eventually she said, look, it's, it's, it's Bigfoot or me. And uh, he, he couldn't let it go. So this is a sort of thing that happens to real people with with various kinds of obsessions and I don't know that I can get behind the way this film treats it. Uh, 
Okay, folks, I'm back for part two of what is turning out to be a very long episode, but that's okay. I have lots more great stuff to talk about. I've just edited the first half that you've heard. Hopefully I'm not repeating myself too much. I had to, I did take out a bunch of sections where I was kind of repeating myself. The same themes, of course, will appear uh, again and again in the second part of the episode and the second part of the film. So I'm going to do my best to just mention them but skip over them and not dwell on them as they reappear. The next scene I want to talk about is the scene in India. So up in the north of India, uh, Lakam and his team have discovered or heard that a group of people living there had some kind of encounter with the craft and have heard a sound being broadcast from the sky. Now, this is when we first hear the iconic five-note uh, bit of music, which is forever associated with this film. Of course, the ba ba bum 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 piece of music. And... This always makes me think of Moonraker. You know, when you're a kid and you see the spoof, you tend to see the spoof version of something before you see the real one. Well, I uh, this this bit of music was used as a joke in the James Bond film Moonraker the following year, and I've heard a story uh, on a I can't remember what show it was, and I can't verify this, but there is a story that basically Albert Cubby Broccoli, the producer for the Bond films asked Spielberg if he could use this five-note sequence for a joke in Moonraker, and Spielberg said, yeah, sure, no problem. And then for some later project, Spielberg or one of his team wanted to use the James Bond theme for some joke in a film, and Cubby Broccoli said, no, no thanks. So didn't repay the favor, according to the story anyway. Again, just very briefly, this scene again hits back on the theme of like indigenous groups of people being more in touch with with the source, with the universe, and and a slightly colonial take here. I don't want to be too down on this scene because it is very effective. It's very the, the sort of spiritual element here is very strong and can be very moving um, if you're in the right mood for it. If you're not feeling too cynical about the pseudo colonialist. Um, tropes that are at play here there it, it does feel quite genuine to me and um, it's a wonderful bit of cinema cinematography there are large numbers of extras and just that feeling of you know hundreds of people together and um, feeling this emotion feeling this positivity and, and making that connection to something as wondrous as you know the possibility of alien life you know if, if you're not feeling cynical it, it is a really really good scene we then cut to Lacan addressing some sort of international committee in this like hilariously enormous and almost empty stadium, which it, again looks to me like a wonderful piece of matte painting or perhaps a model. Um, and he's playing the five note sequence to the people in the audience. And th this is really weird to me. It's like he plays the sequence and they all immediately react to it um, and, and they clear cheer and they clap and they seem to recognize the significance of it immediately they hear this sound i presume he's given them the context that you know they they believe it has come from the sky or from the stars somehow but they this is much more of an emotional thing it makes it makes sense emotionally rather than practically i think anyway i think people are supposed to be again experiencing an almost spiritual or religious reaction to the sound here and I don't know if the piece of music is so wonderful that it, it <laughs> can do that for you, but it is, it's still, it's an impressive moment. And it's almost like a touch of magical realism here. I don't really think that a, a group of international delegates 
would spontaneously burst into applause based on these notes and this story. But in the film, there's something about this piece of music that touches them in this particular way. And Spielberg, of course, being the master of schmaltz, just about pulls pulls this off. So we get the idea that in the background, the the governmental response to these happenings is pushing forward and leading towards some kind of climax. We then cut back to Muncie, Indiana, and we have another night of what I'm going to call sky watching, which was a legitimate hobby amongst uh, certain groups of people when UFO hunting was really hot back in the 70s. And there's a touch of Heineck here as well. You know, most of the UFOs that they see are in the kind of distant skylights variety, which would have made up the bulk of Heineck's reports. And again, is is kind of like a sober um, UFO log- ufological take on aliens rather than a really, really spectacular craft. But of course, Spielberg, being Spielberg, can't hold himself back for too long and things will get more spectacular. But for now, there's a kind of a carnival atmosphere. This, you know, I've often wondered what it would have felt like in those days when people were really taking this very seriously en masse and you would go out on the night and just look up and and, and wonder and hope that you might see something because it was so in the zeitgeist and there was something in the air. Roy meets with Jillian. Both of them, of course, have had encounters previously. They notice that they have the same burns on them and they start to connect in a way that feels deliberate. It's, there's a touch of the Ghostbusters, you know, key master must meet with the gatekeeper sort of thing. And little the little boy, Barry, is building the mound. So again, we get this idea that everybody who has been touched by the encounter uh, has this image burnt into their brain somehow. Jillian says the quote... You know, she's all excited, not childlike, you know, not not it's not not in a gender way. Just everybody there is enjoying this kind of childlike anticipation. And she says it's like Halloween for grownups, which really puts her finger on the whole thing, which is, you know, why do we like Halloween? We like it because everyone who's fascinated by the strange is maybe secretly hoping that some element of it could be real. And to kind of recapture that open world wonder that you might have when you were a kid. And Spielberg really hammers this home with lots of shots of people, you know, out on the road looking up at the stars and with with like a, a twinkle in the eye almost. Even older people have this kind of childlike wonder on their face. Everybody wants to believe is, 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 is the real feel of this scene. And he portrays this unambiguously as a good thing, as a positive thing. The, the music swells when they think the aliens are going to come back and young people and old people alike you know, have this kind of openness and hope in their face. Uh, I don't always feel that way myself. I, I don't consider kind of open belief to be unambiguously a good thing. I think I think it can be under certain circumstances. Obviously, I my research takes me into places where um, sort of unquestioned belief uh, ends in dark situations quite often. So I have a hard time given stuff like this a pass, but this film comes as close as I probably ever will to endorsing it just because Spielberg does a really great job of framing this in a sense that this is something positive and something wondrous. Except, on this occasion at least, it's not actually the aliens coming, it's the government uh, showing up with their ominous black helicopters, which were a feature of conspiracy theories at this time. Uh, certainly the mid to late 70s probably reaching its cultural climax in a film called Endangered Species from 1982 with uh, I think Joe Beth Williams who you might remember from Poltergeist 
a very a very kind of cheap and a bit naff film it isn't it isn't good but it does if you're interested in that very particular time just when this sort of sense of wonder and magicalness was turning to a much more paranoid conspiratorial sense then that film gives you a, a, a touch of it we then get the famous scene back at Gillian's house where her son Barry is abducted and this whole scene is is amazing this is entirely played like a horror scene from a horror movie and the abduction itself is portrayed as being something unearthly but not in a positive way in a, in a, in a scary and unpredictable way Gillian is is upset by what the way it, it goes on um there's nothing too obvious is seen which I think is a clever move on Spielberg's part all we know is the house is somehow surrounded by something lights strange lights are coming in the windows something is trying to make its way into the house the whole time Barry the small child is excited and happy so continuing this idea that he's completely in tune with the aliens somehow and knows that they are in fact benevolent of course Spielberg would have been referencing the primary uh, abduction story that would have been popular in lore of course would have been once again the hills um, I will say this scene kind of signals a shift in perceptions of alien abduction because the hills famously were abducted while on a lonely road and alien encounters at this time largely still were associated with uh, isolated people in lonely locations in the 80s few years after close encounters this would change um, largely through the work of people like Bud Hopkins who of course we have an episode about uh, I think it was called Oh, oh goodness, I can't remember. It was the name of that book that he wrote, The Copley Woods Encounter, uh, and the made-for-TV movie about it. It slipped my mind. But he changed the narrative where he put the emphasis on, well, you're not safe even when you're at home, because his stories were largely about people who were abducted in their own bedrooms and making alien abduction, turning it from a, a thing where you have to go out into the wilds to put yourself at risk to a very invasive sort of sense of they could get you anywhere. And it is interesting how he took this in a far more sinister direction than Spielberg wants you to think. And it's weird that Spielberg had this one scene in a film where the alien contact is seen as unambiguously benevolent. He has this one scene where it's invasive and, and scary. And of course, this scene gives us that one iconic shot where the little boy opens the door and all of those crazy lights are coming in and he's silhouetted against an unearthly glow which Spielberg is his imagery is heavily associated of course with with lights and blue lights coming in windows and it's something that went through his whole career and uh, he uses a lot in his 2005 War of the Worlds as well we then get an Air Force conference I presume it's the Air Force anyway some sort of pseudo military officials are, are having a conference with the people of the town and they have a policy of official skepticism you know UFOs are not real and of course once again this is coming from the truth about Project Blue Book, which at least for some of its run, or much of its run, was officially trying to dampen down reports about UFOs. One of the townspeople, I think, makes a, a statement to say, you know, where's the photographic, or one of the, uh, sorry, the Air Force guy says, where's the photographic evidence? And one of the townspeople says, well, you know, we've had photography for decades, and Nobody has ever photographed a car crash when it happens or, you know, such things. And he's pointing out, you know, stuff that something that is statistically significant or statistically unlikely to happen or not very common is unlikely to be picked up by cameras. 
And this is something that Spielberg actually believed in at the time. He, he's gone on record as saying that, you know, this has struck him as a good argument for the lack of evidence for UFOs. Whereas now he has come out and said, well, you know, we all carry cameras now all the time. So it's less, this uh, argument is less persuasive than it was in the 1970s. Interestingly, just as the kind of the tone of the debate is starting to sway towards belief in aliens, um, a crusty old timer from the town gets up and ruins everything by saying, oh, I saw a Bigfoot once. And then everybody kind of groans and he tells a story that's supposed to be really stupid. And it's really weird to me, like in this film, which is doing its level best to get you to take the phenomena of UFOs seriously, Bigfoot is trotted out as an example of something that is completely ridiculous and beyond the pale. You know, like we have this one phenomena which is worthy of investigation and then we have this other one which is just obviously a joke, has to be dismissed out of hand. Whereas, obviously, I spend a lot of time reading about these things. In, in, in Bigfoot literature, the exact opposite is true. You know, for example, in, in Where Bigfoot Walks by Robert Pyle, he spends the whole book trying to make the case for Bigfoot, you know, as an ecologist himself, and making it seem like a potentially uh, re realistic thing. And then there's one chapter where he meets, I think, Ray Wallace, who he dismisses as a kook precisely because Ray Wallace is obsessed with UFOs, which he dismisses out of hand. You know, we, we've got this Bigfoot thing, which is obviously serious and worthy of study, but UFOs are silly. So, you know, it, it depends on what you've spent your time trying to convince yourself of. It's just funny to see the exact opposite things used as examples of, you know, self-obviously uh, stupid or pointless phenomena not worthy of study. The epitome of unbelievable. So a little bit ironic there. We then get the sort of central segment of the film where Roy basically, he basically destroys his family. Um, and this is a hard part of the film to watch. It, it's good. It's well put together. And we, we do get the idea that this is a guy who has been given a, a mission, but the mission is difficult and making his regular life impossible. We feel sorry for him. Um, and he is trying, He's at periods, he's trying to come out of it and trying to connect, reconnect with his wife and his kids. But it turns out that this force which has been implanted within him is is too strong. Um, so again, I'm not going to repeat myself, you know, is he kind of like a religious figure who's been given some kind of mission from God or a higher power? Once again, Terry Gar continu continues to do her best, but he's re his behavior here is really off the charts. He's, um, you know, out, out in the street, sort of humiliating his family in front of the whole neighborhood and, and doing really, really crazy stuff. And it gets so intense that the family eventually leave. And as I said before, Spielberg regretted this slightly later in life and or at least came to a slightly different interpretation of it. So are we supposed to side with Roy during all this stuff? I think we're supposed to empathize with him because this has this mission has been thrust upon him, uh, you know, without his without him seeking it out, perhaps. But he, he increasingly leans into it. And the border between, you know, what has been put onto him by the aliens and what he actually wants to do himself and what he's excited about becomes very blurry from here on out. During this time, he's going insane, building gigantic models of the, the mound shape inside in his, his, his living room. And he finally sees what it represents on TV, which is, of course the Devil's Tower um, rock formation in Wyoming, which is a real place made famous by this film. And he makes his way, he decides to start making his way towards it because he's being drawn to it. The government, meanwhile, has, ha have created a cover-up 
to prevent people from going near Devil's Tower. They're telling everybody that there has been some sort of uh, chemical gas spill in the area. And again, we're, we're in the heart of sort of post-Watergate conspiracy media here. So this is the era of JFK conspiracies, and Watergate, uh, movies like Capricorn 1, which comes out a year later, which is about a fake Mars landing and which has to have contributed to the, the growing uh, moon landing skepticism movement. What's weird to me is the Spielberg is kind of ambivalent about whether this government cover-up is good or bad. I mean, it's it's definitely portrayed at the beginning in this kind of paranoid conspiracy fashion where the government, like Roy and eventually Jillian as well, are up against the government and the government are trying to stop them from getting to Devil's Tower and their government are lying about why people can't go there. And it's all about deception and, you know, classic post-Watergate themes. And that's all shown as negative. But in the end, as we'll see, the government, you know, are doing this for good reasons. They they genuinely want to make contact with the aliens and they don't have any ulterior motives and they want it to be this harmonious, positive first contact. And the film kind of slips from one mode into another without, I feel, having a strong statement either way, which is unusual. Most films in this genre are pretty pretty clear about what their stand is on like either pro-government or anti-government. We also get scenes where these two characters are driving through the Wyoming countryside and there are lots of uh, cattle lying, you know, unconscious. Basically, they've been knocked out by some kind of drug. But it does put me in the mind of, you know, another element of UFO culture, which is, of course, cattle mutilations, which was becoming a thing at this time. Um, I have some sort of uh, comic, comic books from this period, which have from the mid to late 70s, which have uh, sections about cattle mutilation talking about this stuff in the American West and kind of climaxing with a doc pseudo-documentary or a documentary by Linda Moulton Howe in 1980 called St Strange Harvest. And she's still, you know, she's still on the scene. She still shows up if you listen to the right shows and, and, and stuff like that. So there are our two main characters now are trying to break into this sort of government fence or wall that they have around the area. They've they've thrown up a an impenetrable sort of a d defensive wall so people can't get in. They're intercepted and eventually interviewed by the authorities. So we get a long scene where Roy is interviewed by Lacombe. And this is, again, up till now, the government have been bad to him anyway, and they're trying to keep him out. But Lacombe and his, his, his American translator are, are very sympathetic characters. They are aware that... Right, we have a bunch of people now who have somehow made contact with the aliens and have been given some mission, and maybe we should investigate this. And, and, and they're far more sympathetic to our main characters than the military authorities are. We find out that a number of people have travelled from across the country to Devil's Tower, having been affected in the same way as Roy and Gillian. And they all get put onto a helicopter together because the military basically just want them taken out of there. They want them out of the scene. I could be wrong here. I thought I heard somebody mention that there were 12 of them, which, of course, hitting our religious themes would put you in mind of the 12 apostles. Regardless of whether I invented that or not, we have the idea of the apostles, I think, is valid because we have this inner circle of people who have been very closely, very heavily affected by the phenomena and who intend to be the first ones there to to seek it out and follow it and, and learn from it. 
and they're on the helicopter about to be moved off and everybody's wearing masks and uh, gas masks because they've been told that uh, the reason Devil's Tower has been sh uh, shut off is because of this gas leak and there's a moment where Roy and Gillian take their masks off to show everybody that this is not really happening. So the taking off of the mask here is is a symbol of faith, you know, and in again in the film blind faith uh, in this and and standing up to authority is seen as a virtue which it absolutely can't be, but in this day and age with with the sort of anti-science stuff that's going on with the pandemic it strikes an uncomfortable note. There are a lot of people at the moment out there as you probably know um who see not wearing a mask as a symbol of both faith and standing up to sort of imagined authority or or tyranny and yeah tough un uncomfortable note at the moment that's all i'll say we then get roy and jillian with a third guy actually who escaped from the helicopter and start climbing up devil's tower and um, the third guy is taken out by helicopters who are spraying some sort of knockout gas but our two final characters make it to what turns out to be a kind of a secret landing site and at this point the narrative shifts where the government are no longer really bad guys in, in fact they like i said they are trying to have a, an honest and open faith meeting with the aliens and uh, one of the this this setting is is amazing actually it's a wonderful set and, and it's it's balanced by some lovely matte paintings of the night sky and Devil's Tower and the mountain all around them, and one of the one of the scientists working down in the in the facility says you couldn't ask for a more beautiful evening, and yeah that that combined with the wonderful nighttime shots and the stars, they're building up to what is surely to be a spiritual experience. Only undercut very slightly by the fact that it really looks, the facility looks like some kind of Bond villain lair, especially with the matte paintings. But they're, they're ready. They have been communicating, they've been interpreting communications through radio telescopes and utilizing the five note sequence to um, basically get the location from the aliens that this is the spot where there is going to be some sort of first contact. And indeed, very quickly after uh, dusk settles, the three of the smaller craft arrive and the humans are prepared they have the five note sequence ready to play from this gigantic big board that's controlled like lights and music which are controlled by um, a keyboard in the middle of the facility and we do indeed find out that music is the universal language and both the humans and the aliens are able to converse in a, to a degree by playing this sequence to one another once again, we finally get a close-up, or we get another close-up take on the craft, and they're again very technological. This is absolutely a nuts and bolts scenario. I have I've just reread a book called World Atlas of UFOs by John Spencer, which is from about 1990, and in his chapter on American ufology, he calls America the last bastion of the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. He's playing with the idea that at that time, at least, it was seen that most other countries, like uh, specifically Europe, I think he's referring to, has kind of given up on the notion that UFOs are literally extraterrestrial spacecraft. They were more interested in sort of Jack Vallée's ideas that it was some sort of psychological thing. And there's a bit of Carl Jung in there as well. And he says American culture, however, has like since the 50s, has really doubled down on aliens as being 
physical things and physical craft and it's interesting how in even in this most spiritual of ufo stories spielberg is is still happy to make the aliens be entirely physical uh, so we get a mass of spacecraft coming around really really spectacular stuff classic scene um and and wonderful wonderful special effects work throughout we get one last little scene where like roy and Jillian are up on the mountainside and Roy decides I've got to get closer I've got to come down there and we get a totally pointless little bit of like chosen one tropery here where Roy decides he's got to go down and Jillian says oh I can't go and they they split up and he goes down and it's it's pointless because Jillian follows him anyway she has to be down there at the end because Barry gets put back and she has to meet him the only reason this mini sequence exists is to double down on the you know, Roy is the central character because he is, and therefore he's got to be the first one to do it. And and there's there's no reason for it except for, you know, slavishly following Joseph Campbell stuff. Finally, the mothership arrives, and it's super magnificent. And of course, this special effects done here by Douglas Trumbull, who hugely important and influential i don't know that i need to say too much about him uh, was responsible for space odyssey before this and would be responsible for special effects on blade runner afterwards it's a it's a wonderful model that's five or six feet long and filmed in it in a room that was uh, filled with smoke um, and this is done basically to provide artificial distance so it feels like you were looking at something instead of you're looking at something relatively small from close up to fool the eye into believing that you're looking at something very big from very far away and it's incredibly effective here the ship was designed by ralph Macquarie, who's a big hero of course in in uh, movie making special effects and, and design uh, worlds now ralph Macquarie, i knew because when i was a kid i used to collect sort of star wars micro machines there was a big resurgence of that stuff in the in the early 90s and very often they would come with art pre-production art from uh, old star wars films and um, there would often be uh, some of the work of ralph mccrory on it i distinctly remember a battle of hoth kit or set that had a wonderful pre-production painting of of the battle of hoth and there was a little bit of text about who ralph Macquarie was and how important he was to the history of the look of star wars and um, dr edward guimont spoke to me recently and said i wonder if um wonder if it's relevant that ralph Macquarie, you know he designed the creature for boggy creek that film and then later on went on to design chewbacca so again you've got this sort of quote-unquote fact influencing fiction uh, and again linking into that Darth Vader story we told earlier famously the ship is based on um, Spielberg seeing an oil refinery at night while in India and um, you can I suppose you can see some of the influence there because the ship has lots of kind of towers sticking out of it with 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 lights all over it so if anyone's ever gone by in a, a refinery or an industrial building at nighttime. Uh, you'll know what he had in mind there and this is a scene of you know unarguable powerful spiritual majesty uh, john williams soundtrack swells and i think at some point there's a little ode there to uh, when you wish upon a star which of course was one of the things spielberg wanted to touch on and um, when he first came up with the idea for the film there is then a sort of what i've written here in my notes as a musical rap battle <laughs> between the humans and the mothership where you know the the ship being big and powerful has 
access to a much deeper notes, perhaps a kind of a brown note almost, where it blows all the windows in one of the towers. And uh, they even manage to find time to make a little joke here and reference Jaws by playing a few notes of the famous Jaws soundtrack. But um, other commentators have also mentioned that music, being a powerful spiritual thing, you know, puts you in mind of a, a church organ or a cathedral organ and uh, the links between music and spirituality there. One of the scientists says the line, uh, it's like the first day of school, you know, like we're learning communication from scratch, we're learning about the universe from scratch. And again, Spielberg is, hit is hitting on that, like returning to childhood sort of thing. Um, and this put me in mind of a quote, which actually I can't place right now. Anyone out there who, for whom this is familiar, by all means, get in touch. Spaceflight has made children once again of us all. I think it was... I have a, a feeling it was either Arthur C. Clarke or Isaac Asimov, but basically this very 1950s idea that we were now opening up a new chapter into going into space. And, you know, by the 70s, that hadn't really panned out and people weren't as excited as they had been just a little bit earlier. And again, along comes this idea of UFOs to kind of reinvigorate our excitement about going out into the universe. Fitting in, of course, with the usual Spielbergian tropes of childlike awe, and uh, I'll go as far as to say as like, you know, in, in deliberately placing yourself in the context of a child is a bit like, you know, like they're deliberately yearning for some sort of cosmic godlike father figure to come down and uh, and teach you the ropes about the universe. Again, might remind you either of a religious thing, but also of the sort of more secular Star Trek humanist tradition of, you know, humanity has finally grown up and is now ready to be accepted into the galactic pantheon of races. So I have a little bit here about the secular UFOs versus sort of new age stuff. I don't want to repeat myself too much here except to say that there's this idea increasingly in UFO culture that this distinction is a little bit artificial. Um, the very first contactee, well, the most important early influential one, of course, being George Adamski, who, as it turns out, had been a New Age guru even before flying saucers were a thing. So there's this idea that the, the distinction between you know, like New Age contactee UFO stuff and then the more nuts and bolts secular stuff, it's a little bit artificial because the more you look into it, the more spiritual elements there were present right from the beginning. And it's really down to individual researchers who were talking to witnesses in the early days and what their particular take was so some researchers who were more interested in the physical eth ufos tended to leave out details from the early stories that uh, had overtly spiritual or religious elements which cropped up more often than you would think and it's weird to think about how much those decisions might have influenced our take on the ufo uh, experience from then until now but ufos as religion is, is a massive thing and, and I remember Heaven's Gate happening in 1997 and I suppose there's any number of other uh, kind of fringe groups you could point to who have taken the phenomena in that particular direction. In the film, next up, the mothership opens up and basically re-releases a, a large number of people who have been abducted down through the centuries and there were people here who are completely out of time and who have not aged in decades including the crew of Flight 19, who, you know, you have to wonder, what is it, what kind of life are they going back to? Um, interestingly, the humans 
appear to have a, a list pre-prepared of people they expect to be returned, implying that the government has known for decades, you know, that these missing people were abducted. And uh, little Barry, of course, is returned to his mother. And he's fine. He's great. He had, a, he had a great time. He laughs about having been up in the air. And it's it's all portrayed as being very positive. The aliens are practically godlike. Their benevolency is, is never questioned, even though they, you know, stole people and kept them away from uh, their families for decades. And they're now bringing them back. And the film is very, yeah, it's great. Hooray. You know, it's very, um, it depends on how, again, it depends on how you're feeling. If you're feeling cynical, these aliens are assholes. If you're if you're open to what Spielberg is is dishing out, it's it's a magical, wonderful moment. Fantastically, Doctor Heineck appears as a minor character here, just appears for a moment. And uh, having recently made my way through series two of the History Blue Book show, um, it's just cool how um quite how much Aidan Gillen looks like him or at least how they make him look like him there's one episode in series two where they show him as an an older Dr. Hynek on the set of Close Encounters it's a very very small scene uh, but it's it's nice it's 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 a thoughtful tip of the hat to the man's work and his influence on on culture especially through this film finally we get to see the aliens and and this is something I'd forgotten about there are different kinds of entities on board the ship. The first one we see is this very tall, thin, marionette-like creature. And then we see the more archetypal, smaller alien greys, which again puts me in mind of, well, is this uh, kind of a galactic federation? Is this indeed a Star Trek first contact moment? We then get the, the typical alien greys. Finally, um, they're short, they have big heads, they're bald. They look okay in the long shots with lots of dry ice, but... Some of the shots where it's a little bit closer, you can see they have these terrible goofy eyes, which kind of made... I, I watched finally Shin Godzilla recently, which is amazing, but uh, Godzilla in his uh, first incarnation in that film has these ridiculous, goofy, boggly eyes that almost, almost killed it for me. This is two years after the UFO incident, the, the TV movie about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, which is seen as a key moment in the solidification of the idea of the greys um and i have to wonder how much the appearance of the aliens in close encounters is based off of what j allen hynek might have been telling spielberg so i'm going to read from rolling stone once again um to get some quotes on that i've just brought up the wrong quote there so the extraterrestrial visitors designed and built by carlo Rambaldini were another kind of problem. Quote, they were always the same based on reports on third kind eyewitness encounters over the years. I mean, Aborigines who've had third kind encounters described the same features as Betty and Barney Hill from New Hampshire and people in France, Russia, all described the, the same. The spindly arms, the four foot stature, the waif-like eyes. In third kind encounters, it's all the same. That's one of the things that perplexed me. So that's Spielberg talking about the reading he, he would have done from, from J. Allen Hynek, saying that this idea of what aliens look like was quite um, singular at this time. Interesting that he mentions the hills because what they saw and what they reported the aliens looking like changed over the course of several years and several different iterations of their, of their encounter. And, and originally they started out as being quite human, but then over the course of 
you know, these hyp hypnosis sessions, they became less human. And then their kind of final incarnation as alien greys, as we might recognize them, or at least close to that, was really not until the film came out in, in 1975. And yet here is Spielberg saying that um, many, many people around the world are reporting the same thing. So it's interesting to hear that as early as, you know, the production of this film in, in 1975 or six. The article finishes with this. When I left him that night, that's Spielberg, he was standing in front of the set watching a program called The UFO Connection. Pictures of flying saucers flashed on the screen. Maybe I ought to watch this, he said. Then he jerked back. That's a cloud. And that's a hubcap. I know all these hoaxes and how they're done. Next were aerial pictures of mysterious land shapes, which narrator Rod Serling suggested might be UFO airports. Spielberg's voice changed in mid-croak. Not Von Daniken again. Those aren't runways. They didn't need runways. So he's obviously talking about Eric Von Daniken and uh, the, his idea that maybe the mysterious Nazca lines were you know, runways for spacecraft, which is patently ridiculous because they're only barely scratched into the surface and any sort of, you know, technological flying craft would just destroy them. And uh, kind of hard to imagine what kind of interstellar you know civilization would need kind of such a thing <clears throat> so yeah spielberg is is open the phenomena here and he's you know he's got he's critical about it he, he he's not taking all of it uh, on board uncritically which which is cool in order to just return to the grays for a second i i think the final word on this rests with a researcher called Martin Kottmeyer, who used to write for the British Magonia magazine. And he has a, a series of articles called Varicus Brains and um, Entirely Unpredisposed, where he gets into the origins of the alien greys in great depth. And we did two episodes about this previously, and I am proud of them, but my thinking on this has evolved a little by reading even more Kottmeyer. And it's not an easy thing to explain. His His take really is that the alien grey, to a degree, at least the idea that the aliens were short and had swollen heads and didn't have hair or other facial features, he says that has kind of always been with us. It hasn't always been the dominant uh, take in pop culture on what the aliens look like, and there have been different waves of thought and different cultural comings and goings. But he says that it's it's long it's long been there, and you can really trace the idea back throughout UFO ufology in the nineteen forties and fifties, and back to nineteenth century sources as well. But it's got to be the case that Close Encounters put this idea front and center for like the largest number of people. Just interesting to me to see Spielberg himself feeling that this idea was already out there um, and unquestioned before the film came out. We then see that there is a team of scientists or astronauts who are basically have been trained to go up onto the ship. I don't know if the humans feel that they have, um, I don't know why they think that this was going to be on the cards. Maybe they have discussed this with the aliens and we haven't seen it, but uh, they're being, interestingly, in the only overt religious moment in the film, they're having mass said to them before they go. They're having a religious Christian religious ceremony. The priest kind of sounds Irish to me, but then priests always sound Irish to me in films. There are a bunch of conspiracy theories, mostly from the 80s and 90s, that the US military or NASA did some kind of a swap with the aliens and sent a bunch of people off to some far colony 
Uh, but I don't really have time to go into that, except to say that um, they just, Roy is allowed to uh, join them and uh, go up onto the ship, which is the culmination, of course, of his personal his personal journey. And, of course, his family are long forgotten at this point. He is uh, perfectly happy to go up onto the ship. Again, it's not explained why the um, military or Air Force powers or whoever is in charge here is so eager to just like have this random guy join them but uh, i suppose it's probably to do with lacom who seems to understand that he has been touched in some way by the encounter and is somehow connected to the aliens who knows the important thing is he's carried alone separate from all the other guys who are officially going onto the ship he is carried in a christ-like pose onto the ship and his arms are out in a sort of a cross crucifix position so you could say that he's sacrificing his regular life here on earth which is, is now dead, and he is going to literally ascend to, you know, some sort of heavenly father, some sort of godlike benevolent uh, force, um, you know, beyond regular life on Earth. And then we get our final alien grey, who looks neither like the spindly tall one nor the little childlike ones. And this is the closest we get to the classic alien grey. And he has a little sort of a uh, sign language, perhaps, conversation with the scientist Lacan. And he, we get a good close up on his head and his face and he looks far more like the alien greys that we'll come to know. This is much closer to the, the famous Whitley Strieber alien from the cover of Communion and, and thus the one that would be carried on to, you know, films like Fire in the Sky, which is a very Spielbergian looking film about the Travis Walton case. And then also, of course, the X-Files in, in the 90s. So they communicate by... Basically, Lacan has come up with this system of changing the five musical notes to hand gestures. Don't really know what the what the importance of that is, and that, nor is it clear why the alien would, you know, why this would be important to him. But they they repeat it to one another anyway. It's just it's just another moment of communication, cross species communication. And yeah, so this this is the kind of alien Grey who <clears throat> goes on to become even more famous in pop culture. I'm going to read briefly from Kottmeyer just to give you an idea of sort of what the range of types of aliens that were being reported in the decades before this, just to give us some context. So Kottmeyer says, Otto Binder, who is a UFO researcher, in a 1974 article surveying 400 occupant cases, uh, indicated 280, about 70% involved beings below average in height. And that, that's an idea that goes right back to the 1940s. Largely, Kottmeyer says, because the craft that were reported just weren't that big. You know, they were kind of 30, 40 feet across. So if they were assumed to have a number of beings within them, well, they probably weren't likely to be very big. Of course, you also get into the Jack Valet idea that the reason aliens are small, short, bald creatures is because... They are the latest incarnation of ideas about, you know, trolls or pixies or, or what, what, you know, what have you with folkloric beings. Kottmeyer goes on to say, There was no consistency. Of skin and clothing colouring, he lists black, blue and bearded, green skin and hair, shining yellow eyes, black face and glowing green torso, done like potato bags, fish scale skin, legs golden yellow, striped clothing, bright red faces, pure white skin, Anatomical features showed no consistency either. He lists dwarfs, hairy bodies, glowing orange eyes, misshapen bald head, no arms, slit mouth, nostril holes, 
three-fingered hands, shriveled face, white hair, pumpkin head, eight-fingered hands, large chests, huge heads, furry clawed hands, thin hooked nose, heads like potatoes, one-eyed, elephantine ears, fingerless hands, twisted legs, some walk or run, some float, some can vanish, some are vicious, some are shy, some are indifferent. So that's uh, Kottmeyer talking about Otto Binder's research in the mid-70s, which is obviously close to when Spielberg uh, was, was planning his film. And he's making the case that there was, yeah, no consistency. Besides that the figures were often small. And again, Kottmeyer really eventually comes to say, look, well, there are many strands of, of thought on this. And there were many different types of culture, uh, UFO culture going at the same time. He then says, he cites an earlier report. He says in 1966, Jacques Vallée's book Challenge to Science hit the scene in the United States. Vallée's work is clearly skewed by his immersion in material from the 1954 wave. That's a, a UFO flap that happened in France. He gives an important assessment that brings forward important defining traits of the grey alien. Quote, Space Brother accounts, uh, those are like the, the friendly aliens that the contactees would meet, should be definitely separated from reports made by psychologically stable and genuinely puzzled citizens. What the witnesses of this latter group describe is very different from the Space Brother image. The typical visitor of these reports is a man of small stature, dressed in shiny clothing or in an ordinary one-piece suit. The suit may hide his head. If the face is described, it is generally described as larger than the human head, with large protruding eyes. Some of the reports insist that the dwarves have hair on their faces, and sometimes all over their bodies, either their own or dark fur clothing. Interestingly, Kottmeyer eventually kind of goes on to say that he reckons the, the small, bald men who would eventually morph into the grey kind of get their emphasis, their first emphasis in, in this French wave of 1954, which other folk, or he reckons Jacques Vallée then took that idea to America with him, where, it, you know, he wasn't the only person doing this, but that it kind of took off from there. And it is true that <clears throat> if you read reports from a certain period, especially the 50s and 60s, there was a much wider variety of strange beings reported um, than there later would be, certainly before close encounters of the third kind it's definitely a kind of a line in the sand where before that all the bets were off and there wasn't quite i don't think there was quite so much this expectation that aliens look a certain way um but as Kotmar continually points out you know just because they weren't the only game in town doesn't mean there weren't proto grays going on in those days as well and that brings me very close to the end of everything I want to say about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, all of the UFO culture elements it was influenced by, and the ways in which I think it was in turn influential on UFO culture itself. What are my conclusions? I think culture at large took some ideas from this film, and I think that this film sort of popularized them. The idea of the greys, of course, the idea of te a technological uh, futuristic alien civilization, the ETH was solidified in American culture. Um, one of the weirdest things that I think culture at large did not take from this film was the, the benevolence. I think Star Wars had a much larger effect on pop culture than this film did in terms of this was... There were not, this was kind of the end of the sort of thoughtful and 
a sense of wonder science fiction that had been popular before. I'm not saying no one ever made a film like this again, but I, I think short term, the influence of Star Wars was, on film was much greater. Much later on, of course, we did eventually get a return to this with films like Arrival and uh, Interstellar and stuff like that. But the, the immediate short term effect was, you know, fast, fun, slightly trashy uh, films. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, but that, that's where it is. This sort of spiritual element, I think, was absent from science fiction for a little while. And UFO culture was about to get much darker. So from from the 80s on, you've got you've got you've got the influence of people like Bud Hopkins and the the primary mover and shaker in abduction or in, in UFO culture is, of course, the abduction stuff, which was about to get very, very dark, very grim, very nasty. And <clears throat> the idea of humans meeting with aliens in ufo culture was not to continue in this vein of benevolent uh, sort of cosmic oneness it was in fact to go down the dark route of the 80s and 90s conspiracy theorists and the ideas of exopolitics and all of that sort of thing but all of that stuff will have to wait for another day so hopefully you've enjoyed all of that i'm kian this is white atlantic weird huge thanks if you're listening to this when it comes out it should be just before christmas so i wish you all the best for your christmas times in i'll say fairly tough times you can always get in touch with us let us know what you think over on twitter we are at strange ireland on instagram we are white atlantic weird podcast so as always stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.